Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast Investorpreneur, where we talk everything investing, everything business, where investors meet entrepreneur. Today, we're going to talk about everything that is so relevant to the business owner and so much of our dream as a business owner. I have got the pleasure of having a friend, a serial entrepreneur, a gentleman who has been, you know, sort of one of the guys that you know, has built a name in Vancouver because of one of the, the, the startups that he was able to exit and to a very large organization. Um, my name is Peter Leung and I'm a global real estate investor. As you guys know, I own, invest and develop in properties all around the world. And you might have seen me in videos on stage working with serial entrepreneurs, working with investors um, on discussing business strategies and marketing strategies. I'm also a private equity and business angel investor as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my special guest here today is the founder and CEO of Quantum Pigeon, Alex Clark. He's also the co-founder of Bitstu, a Vancouver-based startup which had achieved so much you know, reputation as one of the biggest exits of a startup in Vancouver. So Alex, welcome to the show. Peter, happy to be here. Excited. Hey man, it's a pleasure. You know, it's, it's so awesome to see, I mean, I'm from Vancouver, so I've seen you know, I've done business in Vancouver most of my life and having seen you, what you've been able to do and having, you know, the business scale, you know, coming out of Vancouver, you make us all very proud, Alex. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so, very much. Let's visit memory lane a little bit here, Alex. So you co-founded Bitstu back in 2008. Can you tell us about a little bit about this company and what problem did you solve in this company? So what we were solving um, and really where it came from was I was looking for uh, some software that could bring together different systems that spoke different languages, different protocols. So you could have a, a computer on one side uh, broadcasting data in one format and another computer on another side in a different format. And I was looking for technology to bring them together and make sense of the data and then allow it to look like one whole system where we could then do deeper analysis. That was the original start. Uh, I was looking for software that could do that. I didn't find any, so I thought, hey, if I'm looking for something that could do it, maybe somebody else is too. Why don't I create it, see what we can come up with, and then see how uh, see what the market thinks. If nothing else, I had something that I needed. That was good, right? Um, and turned out that the market kind of said, hey, this is a really big problem, uh, getting things to communicate. And what became a natural evolution of that uh, was not only getting you know, computers that we're familiar with, laptops and so forth, communicating or, or servers, but also really where we got our big break was in British Columbia with BC Hydro, which was the utility. They were rolling out their smart meters, which were basically computers they were putting on the sides of everyone's home to measure their energy uh, metering, right? And with that, these 1.8 million meters were all broadcasting information that had to be correlated with different types of systems, whether it was weather or work order systems to find out where crews were. So if a cluster of meters detected an outage uh, and so forth. And so you had all these individual systems sending data. So when I was, you know, when I came to Canada, um, BC Hydro, I was, I was helping them with some of their data architecture and my, my business partner was helping them with some of their architecture. And we just kind of came together and said, hey, wait a minute, you just, it's just like two computers talking, but times one, you know, 1.8 million, 
we can solve your problem. And that became our first foray into the device space where we then branched out into other devices, uh, you know, sensors on aircraft, uh, oil pipelines uh, and so forth, locomotives, manufacturing and layering artificial intelligence to make sense of all the data that we were able to unify, curate and explore. And then we could correlate and find issues. You know, something's vibrating over here and a light lit up in a cockpit of an airplane, why? And that was the question. Wow, so how did you, where, where did the background of all this come from? Like, I mean, <laughs> were, you, were you in technology already? Like, I mean, how did this all come about? I mean, how would, did you find that as a problem to even solve? Well, I think like most, I think like most businesses, and maybe this is what a lot of people don't realize when they look at it at the beginning, um, because I have gotten that question a lot of, well, artificial intelligence for you know, industrial devices, who comes up with that? And I, I, I say, well, you know, if I, if I sat down and I started from zero and I said, you know what I'm going to do? Artificial intelligence for industrial devices. Aha. <laughs> and I came up with the end end solution. I would be a super genius. But that's unfortunately not the way it happens. The way it really happens is like most every business, it evolves. You start with some idea that gets you a foothold into a foundation of something meaningful. And then what you do is as you bring it to market and you hear more and more people talk about it, you say, oh, I can kind of pivot and maneuver into something that actually solves a real market need. So even though I had an original idea, my idea was very simple. It was, let's connect some Device, let's you know, connect some data sets, be able to explore it and learn something from it. That's it. Oh, now I can listen to the market. You know, BC Hydro is having this problem. Okay, now, you know, General Electric is having some some challenges that they want to solve, and and how can we adapt the software over the course of 2008 really to 2016 when our exit. So, I think that's what a lot of people forget. I mean, if you think of companies like Slack, right? That's just one that immediately comes to mind. If I remember right. them correctly. They started off as a gaming company, uh, but they pivoted into the communication space. Now, um, I'll let your audience fact check me if I got my memory right on that, but I'm pretty sure that's the way it was. So like any business, right? You start off with something you think is what, hey, this is what I kind of need. And then you listen and adapt to the market and you evolve over time. Right, that's very cool. So, you know, it, it seemed like that, that was always a smooth journey. I mean, it's only eight years. You had a very successful exit. I mean, it's a very short period of time, right? from a startup in Vancouver, which is not really known for a Silicon type Valley um, you know, organization to an exit. And, and what are some of the challenges that you faced in that short eight years? Yeah, and it's it might be worth noting that because you, you did ask a little bit of my background, which I didn't, uh, I realized just now I forgot to, forgot to answer. <laughs> um, but so my background is uh, I came from Silicon Valley. I was born and raised pretty much uh, in Silicon Valley and moved to Canada in 2007. And the software for what became Bitstu, it wasn't called that at the time, uh, was started in 2005. So I like to say it was an 11 year journey, which in a lot of senses is still pretty quick. Um, and I think like a lot of other companies, when people look at it, they go, wow, you know, you started some software, you you know, moved to Vancouver, you found a large anchor customer that was very you know, supportive. And then you found some good investors uh, from series A to B to C and then exited on the series C, uh, you know, life was great. And wow, that was so, so, so beautiful. 
But the reality of, I think, almost every business is that there are challenges and there are moments where you're going, all right, I don't know how I'm going to keep the lights on. I don't know what I'm going to do. And there was certainly more than one occasion where uh, I couldn't you know, pay myself because I, I needed to pay staff. There were some tax bills mounting because we couldn't pay those. Um, and usually what happens, particularly in the space that BitStew was in, uh, was it was like hunting elephants, right? You'd sign up a large utility or something and the deal would be worth several million and you go, great, I'm gonna hire a bunch of staff. And then, you know, you're trying to land your next utility, but it's a two year cycle. So you're not starting to run out of cash. You're trying to get investments. You don't ever wanna get investment when your cash is out because then they say, no problem, I can give you the money, but it's gonna be expensive money. Um, so really having its ups and downs and being a very lumpy revenue model. Uh, it was still successful, of course. Uh, it's, it's a very hard space to be in, but if you're in, it can be very good, uh, but it definitely has its challenges. And I think a lot of people forget when they see, they look at start to finish, they forget that there's a whole lot of moments where you're white knuckling it. I mean, uh, you know, the famous story of, another famous story that people can fact check me on is uh, Google. You know, them almost selling to Yahoo for a million dollars and, and worrying about when they're going to get their next investment and almost shutting down. And suddenly, you know, they get a, uh, an investment that propels them to where they become today. That's a pretty incredible. So, you know, Alex, you know, this is I'm, I'm sure everybody is, you know, thinking about this. You had you had two points. I mean, one was General Electric came in and made you an offer for one hundred and ten million. Right. Was you know, that was the first initial offer that they had. And that was actually turned down. And correct me if I'm wrong. Um, how did you guys come? I mean, like turning 100, 110 million bucks to turn that away. I mean, like w walk me through that. Well, um, you know, I suppose it's like any, you know, major, say, real estate investment as well, right? You, you start on one side, they start on the other side, and you hope to meet somewhere happy in the middle. And they started at, uh, you know, 110, um, which is a great offer, but yeah, felt it was undervalued for the shareholders. Um, so it wasn't really going to be um, one that we could, uh, we, it's not one we wanted to accept. How's that? Right. And we came back with, uh, you know, our counter offer, you know, trying to get somewhere in the middle. And the response was your counter offers off. I think it was, uh, uh, 250 or something. I can't remember what it was. Um, but, you know, they said, oh, it's, it's too high. Uh, come back with another. And I was fortunate enough to have a really good team um, of people who negotiate very well. Uh, and, you know, as, as a team, we, we discussed and they said, well, hey, look, you know, uh, we're not going to, you know, we came to the conclusion, we're not going to negotiate against ourselves. So, you know, you give us a counteroffer. And, uh, you know, the, the response was no, you give us a counter, you, you, you come down and said, okay, again, we're not going to negotiate against ourselves. It's not what we want to do. And eventually we kind of just said, all right, we're not moving forward. It's Friday. We're out, you know, uh, kind of not walking away uh, until you come back with a counter offer. And then they said, fine, we're not coming back until you guys come back <laughs> with a lower price. Um, and it, you know, uh, was stressful. I think we were raising our uh, Series C. We were halfway through that. And, at, you know, with anything in a business, particularly one that runs a decade, markets shift, markets change. 
And what was very attractive at one point might not have been super attractive at the next point. So artificial intelligence in the industrial internet of things was super attractive in our A and B round. But I think the investment community was getting a little bit disillusioned with some of it as, as happens as a natural cycle. And so it was a little slower to get the C round uh, than, than we wanted. And I'm always a cautious guy. Uh, so I go, all right, you know, we're, we're trying to raise the C. We have an offer, a solid offer to buy out. But in reality, we have to do what's in the best interest of our shareholders. So even though that buyout offer would have been life-changing to me, um, I have to remember that it's everyone involved in the business, not just me. Uh, so there were some, certainly some stressful nights, uh, some glasses of wine, <laughs> some gray hairs. Um, but really just having a plan and sticking to it um, and the plan that, you know, we collectively as a company management team agreed to. Uh, and then, you know, Monday, I think they you know, came back and said, hey, you know, we, we still want to talk. And we um, then had a, a mediator in between, I think it was Pacific Crest. Um, they were able to kind of act as that broker between both of us and say, okay, what if we agree we're in a range and then let's narrow that range instead of, you know, us being, both parties being uh, stubborn and fixated and not moving. <laughs> So, so it, it was a back and forth. And did you have, did you participate in an active role in terms of negotiating? Because, you know, at that point, you're raising Series C, you know, obviously as an entrepreneur and facing challenges, of course, in every business, we're, we're raising capital, right? In every business, there's always a capital raise. So you're responsible to shareholders, you're responsible for the operations, you want it to scale, but at the same time, you need more capital. And so how did you juggle all that to go, you know what, let's not be back against the wall. Let's, let's negotiate with the best intentions so we can get the, the, the best uh, opportunity for shareholders. How did you, I mean, hey, I mean, how did you come to that? Because that, that would, like you say, is very stressful and very, uh, very tough to do and, and, and be emotionally you know, centered. Yeah, I think a big part of it is you have to really, I mean, and there's no question either raising capital or negotiating a sale is a very uh, distracting event, uh, not distracting in a negative way, but it's certainly distracting from getting customers, building products, uh, you know, keeping the teams going. And, you know, uh, if I look at my role as, as a leader or any role in, in, in leadership, the responsibility is to really create good teams. Uh, that's, you know, I'm, I'm in a CEO role now, and that's, you know, that's what I tell everyone. My job is to create really great teams and then let them do their magic. And so back to your question with respect to Bitstu, we, you know, we did a good job of that. I had a good business partner. He was a very sharp negotiator. We hired a really good management team. And, you know, we were able to collectively come together. But while the management team is focused on that, you know, you have to have trust that, say, for example, the engineering team is able to operate with some autonomy and self-sufficiency and, you know, truth be told, they probably needed more attention from me than I was able to give during that time. And so there was more optimization we could have done, but certainly lessons learned that, you know, you will have massively distracting events as a leadership team. That's the point. You need to be responsive. You need to learn how the business as a living organism operates and be able to jump on the next most important piece and still trust that you've laid a foundation enough for the other pieces to operate while you're you know, 80% of your focus is over here and 20% is over there. And that's really, to me, the important part of, of 
building a business, it's very tempting, especially for my personality type to think I can do it. I should own it. I I have, I see it. I want to control everything. Um, but it's not helpful to the business. And so I think one of my biggest learnings for myself is don't be that control freak. Yeah. You think you can do it the best and the visions in here. So the natural translation to the keyboard, uh, you know, oh, I, I'm the best person for it, but that's really not true. Uh, and when I've let other teams run with it and I've empowered them to do what they do best, I've often gotten results where I've said, oh, uh, that's actually better than I would have done. Okay, good. Uh, I'm gonna have a little <laughs> more faith and a little more trust. <laughs> so, so it is about teams. I mean, how much of that, you know, of course in the past, in the current and in the future, it's, it's you know, the ways team are organized is a little bit different. I mean, would you have done anything um, I mean, would you have done anything in bit differently in Bitstu, knowing what you now have the extra wisdom working with a, a you know, GE, a large organization, and then having, you know, back to your own entrepreneurism, what would you have done perhaps differently if one or two things? Well, I think, yes, I, I absolutely would have done things differently. Um, you know, Bitstu being really the first to start from zero to success, uh, a lot of lessons learned along the way. Um, and you know, there, there's kind of that saying, if you want to go fast, you, you go alone. If you want to go deep, you go with the team right. and businesses have their cycles and their maturities and their, uh, you know, their growth, just like a child. Yeah. And so in the early days of Bitstu, uh, you know, going fast, being the sole guy, building it out, it's my idea, code it as fast as I can iterate as quickly as I can get people seeing it. But then there's that recognition that at some point you have to let go and, and build a team and go deep and get parallel, uh, you know, parallelism, multiple people working on the same things, getting the product going on a broad set of features so that you can then scale the business because you can't scale the business if your head's down coding. Right. And I think one of the lessons I learned at, at Bitstu was I, I made that realization too late. Uh, and there was a heavy dependence on me through the engineering team because the code was very complex. So we, you know, we had our own programming language that allowed people to describe what they wanted the system to do. It was more of a declarative way for artificial intelligence to work on large data sets and do integration because the goal of Bitstu was not to have a bunch of engineers code it to solve the business problem. It was to provide a platform that the business people, our customers, could just sit down and write in pretty close to plain language. Hey, I've got all these data sets. I'll describe them. And here's the analysis I want to do. So, you know, we had a full blown compiler. We had uh, fairly complicated algorithms for artificial intelligence. We had to deal with scalability. We had, you know, under management, we had 33 million devices around the world. Some of them communicating at very high frequencies per second. So, you know, we could be processing billions of messages per day around the world. That's a pretty complicated system. And I took too much ownership of it too long mm. that I became a bottleneck to the engineering side. And that was a painful transition for the company as I needed to work more on the scaling side. Um, and thank goodness, you know, I had my business partner uh, to do a lot of that business side um, because, you know, my, my focus always had to go back to the engineering team. Uh, and I should have, I should have scaled out of there sooner. Uh, and that's <clears throat> certainly one of the lessons. The other lesson is to lay some of the foundational things, documentation, policies, process, 
operations. Uh, <clears throat> to an engineering mindset like myself, it's not the sexiest thing. It's not the most right. exciting. But you know, when you're eating dinner, you got to have your broccoli. That's definitely the broccoli that right. keeps the business healthy because as you bring in new members, they can then immediately pick up the policy and have very clear definition of what to do. And so trying to capture those learnings for the next venture to operate it more smoothly uh, is, is certainly been something that's been at the forefront of my mind. No, that's, those, those are two really great lessons. So, you know, moving a little bit more forward, you've had the, obviously as the acquisition with, um, you know, Bitstew into a general electric. And I believe if I'm mistaken, 153 million bucks was, was the, was a sale price record in Vancouver. I mean, like you're the talk of town organization. I mean, some of the VCs that backed it up and I mean, it was the talk of town. So with that exit, now you were also part of the acquisition into the General Electric uh, executive team. So how was that specifically different from a startup, which you founded to an exit, which you're obviously, you know, financially, wow, to the point where now you're sitting in, in a massive boardroom in one of the largest companies in the world. How was, you know, what was the difference or what was the separation? What did you learn from that process? Well, it's a, a lot actually, and it's pretty exciting. Um, and, you know, it was, su it was super cool for me because General Electric had been a company that I, I had admired for decades. I mean, you know, they do some of the coolest stuff in the world. They not only invents, you know, mass produced invented the light bulb kind of thing, uh, jet aircraft engines, nuclear power plants. Uh, I mean, come on, they, they building some of the coolest Everything. stuff on the planet. And I had said early on when I created Bits2, I said, you know, who'd be a great buyer for this would be GE. Uh, and this was you know, years and years before they actually bought. And I said, you know, they've got all these different departments and they have a huge use for the software because you can kind of unify the entire organization on a foundational platform. And I think they eventually, you know, they, they saw that vision as well. And they were working on a different platform they call Predix. And they saw where we could augment them and help them get that vision. So it was a natural, exciting fit. And really cool to, to go to the conferences and see the massive jet aircraft engines all, you know, opened up and, and ready for viewing. So that was really cool. What I learned though, um, is there's a certain level of paranoia maybe uh, on my side. When I was building Bitstew, I assumed that you know your competition is right there, coming at you, uh, always on your heels. You know they got hundreds of engineers, hundreds of millions of dollars to compete with you, and they're just going to destroy you instantly. So it was always kind of a worry because we were competitive uh, on customer bids for sure. When I got inside that though, I learned that it's really a different animal. It's a different process. And one of that is uh, large companies oftentimes don't act like one massive large company with, you know, billions of dollars in cash waiting to just crush you. They operate like a lot of smaller companies put together with their own budgets and their smaller, more focused teams. And mm. uh, they have their stakeholders, which, you know, for us would be our investors, but for them would be, you know, the upper executive management. And also that larger companies have a little bit more inherent challenges that don't allow them to move as quickly. So the competition might not have been as fierce as I had thought, and it's not for any lack of intelligence on their side or lack of leadership or anything else. But when you really think about it, it's hard to coordinate 800 people 
it's much easier to coordinate 96 or 20 or whatever. But the other big thing is, you know, for us as a startup to take a risk on a product feature and to try and change and evolve and say, you know what, we're just gonna throw this out there and see how the market reacts. The real risk to us is negligible. If as a startup, we take a big risk and it fails, we don't, it doesn't really matter all that much. I mean, maybe we go out of business, so it, to us it matters, but to the overall markets and to the overall world, it doesn't matter. But for someone like General Electric to take a big risk and do a big you know, pivot and Hail Mary play, if they fail, they're on the news, their stock markets are, you know, their, their stock value is going down, there's executives getting fired. And so there's much more consequence to such a large organization. So they really, I think, look to startups to be able to absorb that risk and say, okay, you guys go take that risk. You guys go get that market. And if you're successful, we'll buy you. And if you're not, we'll let you die, right? And we'll look to the next one. And internally, we'll set our own foundation and our vision, but it's not gonna be with that same level of high risk that you're able to take. And so in a lot of ways, as a startup, you can out pivot and out maneuver a larger player but the advantage the larger player has is they have better relationships. So they can easily get to the executives of your customer and say, hey, look, we're GE. We want to know exactly what your pain point is, and we will have a team take care of your exact pain points. Um, and so it, it is that bit of balance. But I think that was one of my biggest learning points was it wasn't this big, dark, monolithic machine that was so focused on crushing us. They have a whole massive corporation to run and many small pockets. So don't be afraid to innovate and compete with the larger players because you just might catch their attention to where they say, ah, you took the risk we couldn't, we're gonna, we're gonna buy you up now. That is extremely interesting. I, I actually thought you were gonna say they have more money, they have more resources, but you actually said they had more relationships. You know, this is, yes. this is very interesting. And I guess, you know, what's, what's your take? I mean, just on, on, on that divergence, what is, what's your take on relationships to you know, you know, back then till today, where we you know post COVID era, or you know, during post COVID, I, I suppose, how are relationships changing all this? Like, how how is relationship changing businesses, or how are you seeing relationships change as you know people are not able to meet face to face, or businesses not being conducted the same way? You know, what what what's your take on that? Yeah, it's well, it's. It's interesting because relationships are incredibly important. Um, when I was not part of GE, when it was Bitstu, you know, you go to this massive utility or industrial player, and you, excuse me, you try to convince them, hey, we're small, yes, but you're safe with us. We're not gonna, you know, go out of business and we'll put in these safety controls and we know what we're doing, bank on us. And it's hard for a big company to do, right? Because you know, people don't get fired for picking IBM, but they right. do get fired for picking some unknown startup and then it fails, right? So, you know, big kudos to the management of those customers of ours that say, look, this is the solution we want. We're willing to put our necks out and we believe in this company. So it really is about relationships and a key part of those relationships for us when we were at Bitstu was flying to the customer sites, being on the ground, listening to what they're trying to solve, whiteboarding solutions, talking about how the platform does it all. And a huge part of it, not only for, for customers, but for also raising capital um, is all about relationships and communication. And a big part of what I find is missing now with COVID and everything remote is, you know, ability to read body language, um, ability to pick up on the subtle nuances of communication. So, 
for example, when is, you know, when are you losing the customer? Uh, you know, or in an investment pitch, you know, if I'm yammering on too long on one slide, um, you know, because everybody's a different audience, right? What resonates right. with one doesn't necessarily resonate with another. And so you kind of have this virtual meeting and you can't read the discomfort or the excitement and feed off it. And for me, that's a big part of my energy when I'm working with something and, and trying to cultivate that relationship is understanding what makes, you know, the person or the group, you know, excited about what you're offering. And that's something I think that I've taken pride in my ability to do when somebody's asking a question or making a comment, I usually pause and say, okay, this is what you've asked, but what are you really asking? What are you, what are you really stuck on? Or what is your real worry and concern? You know, you might be asking me about, you know, how do we log data, which would seem so mundane, but you're not asking me how I log data because you care about that. You're asking me about the maturity of our process. So let me right. go answer that deeper question. And what you're really getting into is your fear is that we're a small company and we haven't put in the necessary controls in place so that your customer data is safe. So let me answer that question. I'm not going to answer log files. Yeah, here's where we still are. Right. Who cares? But here's the bigger question you're asking. And so being able to do that and, and hear that and really see if it's resonating or if you're losing your audience, you know, you're just going on too much on one slide and they already get it and they're kind of getting twitchy because some Zoom calls now are off camera too. And so you're just talking into a void when they're on mute. That's always rough, <laughs> you know? But that kind of relationship and, and being at the bit stew side when you know we were small and we're trying to show the maturity of process, that's a harder relationship to cultivate than when we were part of GE and you kind of walk in with that reputation of, boom, you know, we're top 10 companies in the world here. Um, so the conversation is much different. It's not about, hey, how's the maturity of you guys? It's, oh, yeah, how can we work together? We want to make it work. You know, let's not find a way to make it fail versus with the bits two sides more of, well, you're kind of unknown. We're not sure we want to make it work. You have to convince me that you're you're worth it, right? So it's that switch. That's very, that's very interesting because that definitely gives you a different, a different influence, right? Because being a big, a big organization, having that business card and going, hey, you know, I represent GE, it's a very different scale, right? And having access oh, yeah. to the network. And I think that's one of the pivotal components. But, you know, so Alex, so you go from an entrepreneur 2008, you go, you know, the massive exit, joining GE, and then actually in 2017, you decide, okay, you know, I've, I've done that. I've been there, done that. I've done the startup. I've done the, uh, the, 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 the executive, the suit and tie, I'm sure. Now you go, okay, I'm going to go back into a startup entrepreneurism. Tell me about that. I mean, I, that's fascinating because most people would be like, hey, you know what? I had the big exit. See you later. I'm done. I want to know, like, why you did that and, and what you were thinking. Yeah, so the, the buyout was actually an interesting process. Um, and I never did the suit and tie thing. So West Coast, Silicon Valley, it was kind of like hoodie. I'm, I'm dressed up right now. They're going, whoa, long sleeves. Why are you so dressed up? Uh, so the buyout for General Electric was not what I had expected. And I think it, it was a combination of factors that I can talk about pretty briefly. And first off, when when we were being bought out, I expected a, a tech hold, you know, the, the tech style hold back where we're going to buy you out for 153, but we're going to hold back, you know, 50% or we're going to give you some type of, of, of golden handcuff. 
Um, and that, that to me is very typical of a, of a technology company buying another technology company because they want the brain trust to stay. Right. GE being more of an industrial company uh, over 100 years old, they had a different mindset. They had a very old school mindset, which I <clears throat> very much appreciated <laughs> because it was, being, it was benefiting me. But it was, hey, we, we said the buyout's 153 and we're going to pay you in cash the buyout amount. Uh, and the only holdback will be a certain percentage, which was for liabilities and indemnification. So if we had been fraudulent and they needed to settle cases in courts, there was a certain pool of cash. But there was never it was never on performance or anything like that. Mm. Um, and so that was actually a pretty good thing for us uh, because you know you instantly pulled the cash lever and now it's like, woo, we're now independently wealthy and, and, and what happens. The other part about the buyout that was interesting though was that General Electric had faced right at the end of the buyout, uh, and you can see it in their share price, some management challenges, uh, some legacy debt, uh, not necessarily financial debt, but debt of the operation of the company as a conglomerate in its previous leadership as Jack Wel under Jack Welsh and transition under Jeff Immel to be more of a you know, technology company. Hmm. Uh, and you know, certainly no, no secret in some of the uh, pension fund issues that they had uh, and leadership changes. Uh, and what that had done was it caused their stock price to go from $35 a share roughly when they were buying us to about $7 a share. It's a pretty big drop. Now, if we had a lot of that held back in stock, I would have been a pretty unhappy guy, but we were paid in cash. But what that also meant was during that transition, they were a company that was fighting bigger problems than the acquisition of bits do. So a lot of the time after 2016 to when I eventually left in 2018, uh, 2018, late 2017, can't remember the exact date, <laughs> um, was, you know, kind of keeping me uh, at bay, uh, don't leave. But at the same time, there is no effective golden handcuff. Just kind of stay to the goodness of your heart and we'll give you a nice, you know, good size bonus and everything. But, you know, uh, there's none of that, you know, you're locked in to the tunes of right. tens of millions of dollars. And so I really stayed because it was the right thing to do, not because I was of any golden handcuff, which is probably a nice thing, but that also meant that I was kind of walking the halls a little bit saying, hey, I'm here. You know, I can, I can do stuff, guys, I'm here, not doing anything. And, you know, it was more of, okay, kind of hang on, hang on, hang on. And as I analyze, you know, what happened, it's my own opinion that they were doing a lot of software acquisitions to buy themselves out of a problem and to open up an opportunity, which unfortunately could, the timing just wasn't right for them because mm -hmm. you saw the, the, the news and the, and the drop in price of the shares. So I really had an opportunity to spend just about two years uh, in semi-retirement. And I think the first six months was great for me <laughs> because you know there's a lot of stressful time, at least for me, uh, I tend to worry about everything, at least when it comes to, to, to the company. Um, you know, a lot of stressful time that I needed to decompress. But at the end of the six months, you kind of like, okay, now why do I wake up in the morning? What is it that really matters to me? It's not floating in the pool, <laughs> sipping margaritas at noon. Uh, it's not, you know, playing video games. It's not, you know, sitting on a beach like a lot of people say they want to do. It's having some purpose. And without that purpose, there's this 
anxiety that crept into me of, you know, building a business for 11 years becomes a bit of a nice distraction. And you don't have to ask yourself those big life questions. What is my purpose on this planet? And uh, you're, because it's, it's all this energy into building this baby that you've kind of been isolated from that question. And as soon as you've kind of been made where you, your financial problems go away and you have, no one's asking you to really do anything and you're sitting around after six months and you kind of say, okay, what matters to me as a human being? And it's a very important question that we all you know, kind of need to check in with ourselves. And when we don't, we feel this anxiety, this unrest. We can see it when we decide, oh, I'm gonna purchase the next new shiny thing because it's a distraction to me. And I'm not really asking myself the biggest ontolo ontological question, which is why do I exist and what do I want out of life? <laughs> and, you know, I was a bit, I, I tend to like to think of, uh, philosophical things as in case you couldn't have guessed. Um, and so I, you know, had a lot of time in my pool floaty to <laughs> sit and go, you know, what is it I want out of life? Is, is it, you know, to retire now? And no, what I want is to have an impact. What I want is to have a purpose. And, you know, I, I always think for people, it doesn't matter what your purpose is, as long as you have one. Um, and something that excites you to get up in the morning and say, this is what I want to do. This is what I want mm -hmm. to, to, what I want to achieve. And that's really how I transitioned over the course of those two years, that self-reflection of my purpose is not going to be sitting on a floating pool, a pool floaty. It's going to be doing something that I think makes a difference to society and trying to leave a positive mark because now it's no longer about money, which is kind of nice. Right. But now it's really about what matters uh, and that type of reflection, which I think was painful. Uh, it certainly caused me some anxiety as I'm kind of going, what do I do? Do I have the energy for another startup? At the time, you know, I was just six months done with that one. Do I have the energy? What would, what would I want to do? What would I want it to be? And then I sort of stopped thinking about it for the rest of the time. I said, okay, well, yes, I've decided I want to do something, but I'm not going to sit here and try to draw on paper what it's going to be. Yeah. So I talked to a lot of different people and a lot of people, because I had a bit of reputation, they would say to me, Hey, I want to partner with you on something. And I said, well, look, I don't want to be just the name that you partner with the capital and the work while you go off and do stuff and, and tell your friends, you've started a new company. So I would, I would always tell people, okay, great. Sounds good. I'm open to, you know, you, you smart person. I'm open to it. You give me some ideas that you got and we'll see what we can do. And a lot of good ideas from a lot of really smart people but they weren't anything that I would use or do myself. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not something that I'm gonna be immersed in, uh, then I, I had to pass, right? And some of them are really good stuff, uh, you know, but just not for, not for me on a daily basis. So I, I decided I would pass on that and really focus on something I wanted to do for, for me that mattered to me. Right. So then you started, you know, Quantum Pigeon, right? So you decided, Okay, I'm 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 gonna find my future. I'm gonna find that next purpose. And so, tell us a little bit about your new startup. Well, 